0: Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Biosplaining Podcast. My name's Ira. I'm really glad you're here with me today. We're having a conversation with Dr. Uskun Unver. Uskun is a social scientist from Belgium who experienced a really, really debilitating burnout at the tail end of her PhD. And although that's an awful experience, the light at the end of the tunnel from that is that Uzga decided to become sort of a coach for academics who are struggling with burnout and overwhelm in their careers. So she hosts a podcast and a website to offer support and guidance and coaching to help academics get back on their feet. I first came across Uzgun on LinkedIn, and I wanted to have this conversation with her because my own experiences in grad school as a scientist were also fraught with mental health struggles. Definitely anxiety problems, definitely a bit of depression sprinkled in there for good measure, and generally just feeling like I was overwhelmed all the time. And I couldn't sort of stop that momentum of anxiety and overwhelm and a lack of a work-life balance. So when I found Uzgun, I wanted to have this conversation to help discuss sort of why we think mental health struggles are so common in academia. And while we don't have any hard evidence to point to in this episode, I think it's fair to say that there is sort of an overrepresentation of anxiety, depression, and other mental health struggles in academia. And this could be for a few reasons. One point that we touch on is that people who end up in academia tend to be very high functioning, very altruistic, somewhat perfectionist in their tendencies. They want to work hard and they want to make the world a better place. That's why they get into science in the first place. But that sort of mentality often breeds things like overwork, lack of boundaries, and just a difficult time separating your work and your personal life, especially when workloads get a bit overwhelming. And then there's the workload side. It's very, very common to have overwhelming workloads in academia. The deliverable structure is very strange. Uskun does a great job of dropping a a new phrase that maybe land up on a t-shirt, who knows. But we've all heard of publish or perish in academia now it's more like publish and perish there's a preponderance of overwork in academia there's a lot of unpaid work that professors are expected to do things like peer review things like travel for conferences it's not the same in terms of other industries in terms of work balance Often in academia, people are just sort of taught indirectly to just suck it up and work hard and keep going. And it's not until things get really, really, really bad that they stop and say, "Okay, well, maybe this is a bigger problem than than just my workload. Maybe I actually am struggling with something like anxiety or depression. We had a lot of great conversation points. Obviously, we can't talk about everything in this episode, but I'm really proud about how it turned out. We talked about some coping strategies. We talked about boundaries. We talked about how boundaries are sometimes easier said than done. We talked about the importance of self-awareness and understanding and accepting of your condition, whether or not that's anxiety or depression or something else. That change is only going to start when you accept it in yourself and have the courage to seek professional help. That being said, the obvious disclaimer is that while both of us are scientists, neither of us are medical doctors and so you should absolutely not take this podcast as any sort of professional advice. Please, if you are someone you know is struggling with mental health, please go seek professional help and you can explore treatment options. It's really important to confront this with professionals who are in your corner who can help you get back on your feet. All right, Easter eggs in this episode include me getting better at cutting people off less so hopefully we'll get to zero at one point as well listeners with very good hearing may be able to pick up the very very high-pitched register of a two-year-old toddler having a meltdown that's my adorable nephew remy don't hold it against him he's only two and with that this is my conversation with us on academic mental health struggles i hope you enjoy talk to you soon
1: Thank you so much. First of all, for inviting me to be on this podcast, it's really an honor, and a pleasure to be here and to be able to talk about these things with a wider audience. Because obviously, we need to talk more about mental health, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to to give you a, a quick snapshot of what happened to me. Uh, well, I have been living with depressions. So since my childhood, I think, since my teenage years, at least, uh, looking back, I can see that. But of course, at that time, I didn't know that it was uh, depression. Mm. So I just thought I was, a, you know, a lazy person, a melancholic, a, like a whiny person and all of that. But it was actually depression. Mm. So I, uh, once I realized that this was depression and I had like episodes of it uh, coming and going, I started seeking help for it. It's just that at some point, this this uh, therapy, uh, the, the way I sought help, was not enough anymore, mm. and I had uh, a big changes in my life. Uh, first of all, uh, the the biggest change was for me to move to Belgium. I'm from Turkey normally, uh, so I moved to Belgium as a student to study uh, for my masters there. And I am still in Belgium after 14, 15 years. Mm. And during this time, my mental health deteriorated because Mm. I was away from my family, my friends, my social environment. And I didn't have the social support network Mm. uh, anymore. Mm. So I had to build everything from scratch. Plus you are in a new environment. You're trying to adapt. Uh, to a new culture, you're learning new languages, multiple of them in Belgium. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so many things were uh, coming at me. So after my master's, I was still able to cope during master's, but PhD period was more difficult because then I was under extreme stress and it was all existential. Mm. And towards the end of my PhD, then, yeah, none of this this therapy and everything else I was doing worked anymore. And I overworked as well. As a result, I ended up in an incapacitating burnout, I can mm. say.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, that was a few months before I was able to submit my thesis. Oh my goodness. Uh, and after that, after I uh, recovered a bit, uh, that took... Yeah, more than a year or so, I decided to be more vocal about my situation, both the mental health part and the burnout part, because I knew that I wasn't the only one, but nobody talked about it. Right, and there right. was there's so much shame attached to it, which shouldn't be there, actually, because we are all human and we all mental have mental health.
0: Mm -hmm, Definitely. Can I just uh, ask them a clarification question? So when you studied, just your general area of studies so people can understand where you're coming from. What did you study Uh, in your master's and PhD?
1: Okay. Well, I can say in general that I'm a social scientist. Awesome. I studied many things under that uh, general subject. I studied international relations, political science, uh, social Mm -hmm. anthropology, social policy, statistics like everything that has to do with social sciences yeah well
0: that's that's fantastic because so I come from let's just use I don't think this is the best term but I come from like a hard science background you come from Mm -hmm. a social science background so I think this is also excellent to discuss because uh, I I think there's a tendency for people to sort of have this myopic vision of mental health within academia as in like oh you know I'm a biologist and you don't understand what it's like because you don't work in a lab versus Mm -hmm. you know a social scientist might think something similar um Mm -hmm. but it's good to know that this is well good to know it's good to recognize that you know mental health struggles exist within academia in general regardless of sort of the discipline or or your your certain work setup so thank you for sharing that uh super quickly i'll just go over my story because i don't think i have so um i studied uh well i guess i should back up and start in the same context you did so uh, looking back at my life, I've definitely had like very severe anxiety problems my entire life. Um, mm. Definitely diagnosed with general anxiety disorder, uh, moderate to severe. Um, and I think I think a lot of people that struggle with anxiety have it's sort of a double edged sword. On one hand, it's it's a very strong motivator. I think if you're in a school environment, it pushes you to do well and you don't need, um, you know, extra uh, sort of uh, stimuli or extra people sort of pushing you along to get things accomplished. I think your brain does that really well for you, but it it can get really out of control. And so um, I ended up going to grad school to study plant molecular biology, sort of plant development. Um, the lab I was in was just really intense and it was really difficult for me to understand that at the time. I think I knew it was hard, but I didn't have anything to compare it to because I hadn't done like multiple Degrees, right, in multiple grad school experiences in parallel. So I can't say, you know, this was easier or harder than something else. But I definitely feel that the lab environment and the workload and the expectations were unrealistic. And there was always it felt like I never I could never accomplish what I needed to. Like I was working and working and working and working and having very little work life balance and just the way my brain works. I mean, like I would come home at the end of the day and I would still be thinking about work. Mm -hmm. And that took a really long time to shake off. Um, I think the workload and the expectations that we were put under were not uh, not fair. It it was hard. On one Mm -hmm. hand, it's difficult to, you know, point fingers because I think in like my supervisor's perspective, he wanted to train us to be really good scientists. And so it takes a lot of work and, you know, you only get out of it what you put in. But on the other hand, I, I do feel like there was an element of selection in that lab where he knew that, you know, people with certain people pleasing and like maybe like sort of more along the lines of anxiety would, would do well because he was, uh, he was a very micromanagey. So like Mm -hmm. we had meetings with our supervisor every single week, which Mm -hmm. in all of my years of being a grad student and working with grad students and talking to grad students, I've never heard of that before. So... (laughs) I, I like I think it was great because again, you're publishing, you gotta be on top of things, but it was just it was just really intense and so um I was the first student to graduate from that lab uh didn't go back to academia after that, um which is a whole other story, but I do know that um you know subsequent grad students in that lab have had similar experiences, and um yeah i just I just think that's something that lends itself very well to the mental health struggle in academia is like there's there's a few things um the the workload and sort of the deliverable structure is very nebulous and so Mm -hmm. what i what i struggled with is so i studied arabidopsis which is a model plant system and it's got a really fast life cycle for plants it's two months but if you have to do an experiment for example and you need to get a certain marker line solidified or like a certain mutant line solidified that's six months till you get the homozygous mutants so everything is in these long timelines where you're like, okay, well, you know, a day is a day if, if I'm not super productive today, but you're sort of like committed to this long timeline that mm-hmm. I felt like I couldn't ever stop the momentum. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and then also there's, there's the component of, you know, everything sort of rides on your defense. So it's, it's not like you could say, okay, well, if I, you know, take a week off cause I'm having really difficult time mentally, um, that's okay because at least my experience, I kind of felt like, well, well, you just try your best and like, well, I hope you defend, I hope we got enough data. Like it was, it was something that you had no control over. And I think that's really, really difficult. So, um, super, yeah, super briefly. That was, that was my story, but, um, mm-hmm. maybe we can talk about, yeah, like, I guess what you think are some common in your experience, speaking with, um, other academics and helping coach them through burnout and mental health, What are some um, sort of other mental health struggles that people might deal with? So we've sort of touched on depression, um, Mm -hmm. anxiety. Is there anything else that comes up frequently?
1: Those are the most common, I Mm. think, both in general uh, public and for academics. Mm. And, you you know, uh, anxiety and depression are sometimes thought of two uh, completely different things. You know, in depression, you're... Uh, considered to be more numb and uh, yeah down and everything. And in anxiety, you have like, oh, you're running around all the time because you have to like rush, rush, rush. And then the perfect storm happens when these two come together. Mm. And for many academics, this is also the case uh, because although my background is in depression, unfortunately, at some point I did develop anxiety as well. Mm-hmm. And that is like... Uh, that's the something weird because you are both depressed and anxious mm-hmm. and it's all a mess. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, but as I said, uh, these two are the most common also for the general society. Uh, but the, the, the amount of people, the percentage of people who have these problems in academia is higher than uh what you see in the outside world uh really
0: i can i can guess that but i haven't done the like work to research it but it doesn't surprise me which is sad you know like it it doesn't surprise me at all i feel like mental health struggles and academia go together like salt and pepper or peanut butter and jelly right like it's yes it's awful. Unfortunately. Can, I, can I tell you just ah. an anecdote about that? Oh, I'm, I'm sure. sorry. I'm doing my cutting off thing again. Super quickly. I remember finally, you know, in my, my master's was two and a half years, but I worked as an RA in the lab for a year and a half before. So I was in like a four year sort of situation. But I remember towards the end, I was so overwhelmed that I finally um, talked to someone and I got uh, prescriptions for uh, antidepressants. So SNRIs, which are like a class of mm-hmm. anti-anxiety, antidepressants. And I'd, I actually ran into a friend of mine who uh, worked in the university at the pharmacy. She was going on vacation with her husband, and they were getting some shots or something. And she was a pharmacology background. And she was like, oh, why are you here? And I just said, oh, you know, getting getting SNRIs. And without skipping a beat, she knew what I was talking about. And she's like, oh, yeah, welcome to grad school. And she just laughed. And I was like, damn it, I tried to be so mysterious, right? And so it's it's so common. It's so common.
1: Exactly. So common. And that's that's the problem. It's so common. And we all think that it is only about us and we should just suck it up and go forward with what we are doing but when so many people are dealing with the one same problem it is not individual anymore it is a Mm -hmm. collective problem Mm -hmm. i mean you there should be unions about this there should be i don't know political parties about this this is this is not an individual experience anymore this is clearly related to the way society is organized functioning Inside and outside of academia, but inside academia, of course, things get a bit more out of hand because uh, the people, in my opinion and in my observation, the people who get attracted to this environment, to academia, to academic work, we are more perfectionist people. Mm. We are idealistic. We want to do Mm. good in the world. And we have really high sense of, responsibility and and we just cannot stop until we are sure that we are doing good and this does take a toll at some point you can't you can't be perfect nobody is perfect but in academia we have this illusion that yeah the the professor that affected us uh, so much during our undergraduate years ah, yeah that was perfect I want to be a perfect professor like Him or her. Mm -hmm. Like our role models come from this perfection ideal too. And it is very toxic. And um, like we talked before, not during the podcast, but uh, while we were not recording, the publish or perish culture. It is not publish and perish culture, by the way. It's not publish or perish. You publish and and perish. perish as well on top of it. So it's just a never-ending story and uh, this is the case also for for many people many other professionals outside of academia but we are particularly in a difficult situation right. because our our uh, the way we work our contracts are also super precarious
0: right Okay, that's that's great. So first of all, I want to just like applaud the publish and perish because I actually Mm -hmm. never heard the flip on that. And I think I think that's like T-shirt material, unfortunately, (laughs) but I this brings me to my next sort of discussion point. So I want to sort of unpack because I, I don't know who's listening to this podcast, hopefully tons of people, but everyone has different experiences. And I think what I want to try to communicate with the show in general is that science or academia in general, is just, it's very different than I'm using air quotes, the real world for a number mm-hmm. of reasons. And so it's hard to be on the outside of it and understand where people are coming from who are in academia, because like you just mentioned, like there's this publish and perish culture. I don't even want to say culture because that's just how it works. Maybe it is culture. Um, mm-hmm. There's these precarious contracts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have some other notes that I'm just going to sort of go off of, but like, again you have these pi's who like let's be real can be brilliant scientists and researchers but in a number of situations like they probably shouldn't be people that are in charge of anything you exactly. know like you get these you get these researchers that come up through the academy and who are really good at what they do but if you think of like a lab as a business like these people don't have leadership or management skills or hr functions really so you're sort of left with whatever skill sets that the, you know, the PI develops in addition to their domain knowledge and they mm-hmm. might not have a lot of experience dealing with people. The other mm-hmm. thing that I think is um, so crazy when you step back to think about it is like, I, I can't say, I can't speak to social sciences necessarily, but at least in the hard sciences, if you're a grad student in a lab and you're going through a real hard time and you need to maybe get out of that lab or pull the plug or whatever reason, Um, you know, which might actually be because of your supervisor. Mm -hmm. That's like career suicide almost. Like it's going to be (laughs) very, you know what I mean? But it's going to be very, very, it's not like you're working for a company. You're there for a year. You hate it. You, you quit and you're like, I'll just get another job and maybe it'll take me a little longer because there might be this weird thing on my resume. Like you're in, what happens is you sign on for a project and your project has to be taken from beginning to completion and publication and your thesis defense. And, you can't just port that project to another lab because that doesn't really happen. So there's not like an identical version of your project in a different lab that you can go to, because if there was, that would be actually your competitors, Mm -hmm. which is not going to happen and you're going to be starting again. And so also if you end up leaving, you know, your, your, your lab, say halfway through your program for whatever reason, that's going to look very sketchy on your application to other programs. And then you might get sort of blacklisted. Like it's, it's very hmm. difficult to continue because even if you're trying to do the right thing for your own mental health, it might yeah. look really poor on your applications for a new lab. And then another supervisor would say, like, well, you know, what if this person leaves after two years also? Um, yeah. That's so that that was that's a huge thing, too, because, you know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of students. I struggled a lot with my mental health and a lot of people just asked me, like can't you go to a new lab? And you're like, you, you don't get it. Like you've already, you, you put <laughs> yeah. all of this time into this project. You can't just yeah. leave. Right. And then you're, you're out half of, you know, a degree. Yeah.
1: Um, it looks then, like a, a job, but it's, it's more than a job. It's exactly. actually a way of life. And yeah. uh, what you said, it's also true in social sciences uh, to a certain extent, I think, but I also want to add to this, uh, like you, Let's say you have a really uh, abusive supervisor and you, mm-hmm. you, uh, you uh, bit your tongue, uh, you, you said, OK, I'm going to finish this and you finish it. And then several years later, if you want to talk about how abusive this PI was towards you that also can turn into academic suicide mm-hmm. the, the the danger of academic suicide committing academic suicide doesn't end with uh, you know by by going finishing your your phd it's it's always there whenever you open your mouth uh, against your your previous supervisor or your superiors there's always such a danger so there there are some People, unfortunately, some professors who are uh, functioning in this, yeah, in this abusive way and uh, they keep ruining uh, young academics careers if mm-hmm. they if you talk uh, against them. So it is not only a problem during a PhD. Many people think that, OK, once I finish my PhD, I am out of this and I will be free and I can I can really do science as I want. Mm-hmm. No incorrect. Mm. It's yeah. not the case. And another thing I want to add is that because you said uh, people outside of academia don't understand us, right? Mm-hmm. I think it is one of the weird things uh, about academia is that uh, yeah, university, when you think of university, you think of you know independent organization that is dedicated to science, knowledge, education, mm-hmm. and all of that. But more and more, that structure is turning into a, a profit-making company structure, right. basically. Right. And as academics, we have KPIs and they're mm. really like they, they suck the energy out of us. So on the one hand, you are expected to do all of these paid and unpaid work like peer review uh, mm-hmm. going to a conference on the other side of the world and that that travel time not counting as work for instance like mm-hmm. you can go or working at night because uh, i don't know your colleague uh, wanted you to um so you do this paid and unpaid work with the the idea that you are contributing to science and to society mm-hmm. in general but on the other hand you are in this structure where you have to keep attaining goals and hitting those KPIs and all of those things. A funny thing uh, happened to a friend of mine is that, uh, yeah, he's a historian. And one day he said, ah, yeah, to, to a friend of his outside of academia, I got published. Yeah, an article of mine got, uh, got published. And that, that person said, "Ah, oh, yeah, that's great. How much are you going to earn for it? Right. Uh, nothing. Right. But... But that journal, aren't they selling your article? Yes, they are. And yep. how much are they earning? Uh, this, this, this amount, whatever. D- don't you get anything out of it? No.
0: Nope. nope. No, not On only another, do you not get anything. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. But you have to pay the journal to publish oh, that too. your article.
1: <laughs> that too, if it's open access. Yeah. yeah. And then when you're, uh, for example, reviewing articles, peer reviewing them, uh, the the journal that is publishing them is uh, getting all this money because they sell those articles, but Mm -hmm. they don't pay anything to the the researcher or the reviewer. So that people ask you, why do you do that? Because you are supposed to do that outside of your work hours too. Exactly.
0: Exactly. (laughs) Like, like academia is so broken when you think about it. Like any business person on the outside would say like, this is crazy because, you know, like, uh, the biz- people in corporations don't work for free. Like overtime mm-hmm. is a thing. Uh, you know, if, if you're, if you have too much on your plate and you can't get your deliverables done, then that's like an argument that you have to hire more people. Like that's how the mm-hmm. corporate world works. But in academia, it's, I'm so glad you brought that up because a lot of people don't know this. You pay usually something to get your, your stuff published. If someone wants you to review uh, papers for a journal which is like a great I guess honor and recognition because you're seen as an expert which is great but it's volunteer work um, mm-hmm. I, like you said travel time to conferences isn't paid it's volunteer and it, I, I think part of the problem is that you know like academia has these very bizarre inputs of like labor time money that don't translate yeah. well to the outside world which is I think the cause of many problems mm-hmm. um, but then also like it's I think a lot of us, like we were saying sort of earlier, like live under this sort of intentional delusion because we love what we're studying. We love yes. the science of research that we're like, we're doing it for science. We're doing it, yes. you know, to further the knowledge and I'm contributing to the literature. But like, like I got asked the same question when you get published, don't people pay? You? No. So I think this whole it academia runs on this engine of just like researchers sort of buying into this delusion that like, it's okay. We don't need to have feelings because, because literature, right. Or because like we're contributing (laughs) to knowledge and that that's used as this, like it's, it's used across the board. I'm I'm realizing more and more, the more people I speak to and for us to just, it's not like deliberate, but I think a lot of people sell themselves short. They don't know how to communicate things. They, they Mm -hmm. work too hard because they just think, well, Mm -hmm. I'm doing it for science. It doesn't matter Mm -hmm. if I'm upset because contributing to knowledge it doesn't matter if I'm being exploited because I'm contributing to knowledge and it's it's really yeah I I I don't know what the solution is without like Mm -hmm. burning the whole system down but (laughs) but yeah Yeah. it's it's crazy crazy okay so so why don't we move on to um Let's talk about some coping mechanisms. I mean, if people, I think people could probably understand when they're overwhelmed and, and be, at least at the maybe early stages of things like depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. or, or whatever. So, have you found um, in your own experience or talking to other people uh, any coping strategies that are worth sharing?
1: Ah, worth sharing. Uh, well, get professional help, first of mm. all but before that you need to be aware of the situation there are okay. so many people who are in a really difficult situation they just keep pushing forward because that's what you're supposed to do they think mm-hmm. i just keep i just need to keep pushing forward uh, i have been procrastinating so i should push myself to work uh, during the weekend mm-hmm. well you need to take a step back and tell yourself okay Am I a lazy person? Would a lazy person come to where I am now? Mm-hmm. Am I? Uh, am I the, really someone who is trying to, uh, yeah, trick people into hiring me? Because there's also a lot of imposter syndrome going on, right? Right. So you need to be able to take distance from the imposter syndrome also, and look at your life and acknowledge the fact that. If you have been procrastinating, that has to do with your nervous system being overloaded, that you are super exhausted, that you cannot produce anything anymore, you are incapable of thinking and making decisions. Mm. These are all early signs of burnout. And Mm. if you keep pushing forward, 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 you either end up in a burnout or in a, a deeper depression or whatever. Mm-hmm. Pushing forward is not a good idea. It is, we live in a society that really um, puts overworking on a pedestal. Right? Mm-hmm. We need to. Oh, I have been working fifteen hours a day. Look at me. I am. I am awesome. I don't care about my life or myself. Right. I just do this for science. Well if you keep working 15 hours a day at some point you will be of no use to science because you will break down yeah you're you're a person you're a human being you're not a you're not a machine and even if you're a machine you need a, you need regular servicing rest time and servicing right yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> i'm yeah i'm so, so glad you brought those points up Uh here i cut you off again i'm sorry please please go on eventually i'll stop uh, doing this it, it,
1: it's
0: okay, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm for the audience. I mean, like hopefully every episode I cut people off less and less until it never happens. but'm um, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the point about procrastination because I think a game changer for me, um, this didn't I don't think I found this out when I was in grad school only a few years ago, but I remember reading um, that they actually have like scientific evidence in the literature to show that procrastination is not a time management problem, it's an emotion management problem. And yes. that was a game changer for me because I think we've all procrastinated for whatever reason and I, like you said, you're not a lazy person and I think I think because you mentioned a lot of people in academia are like high functioning, they they have sort of a perfectionist quality maybe, but they're they're efficient people. And so, when you procrastinate, it's always like this identity crisis because you're like, "I'm better than this. Like, why am I not? Yes. Why am I not yes. doing this?" Right? But but it turns out that it's like it really is about your emotions. There is something blocking you because you're either any combination of like unhappy or nervous or anxious or frustrated exactly. about whatever exactly. you have to do, and so you're just not doing it. And so, the the way to overcome procrastination is not to just like schedule things better or more it's to really like do that inner work and confront and say like, okay, what am I feeling? And again, with professional help, this would be great too. But like, what is blocking me? Am I upset about this? Why? And once you actually, like I found once you actually confront that emotion and think like, okay, this is what I'm dealing with. Why am I dealing with it? Then the execution is easy because you're not, you're not dealing with, you're not carrying around that emotional weight anymore. So I I just wanted to share that because I think that's going to change a lot of people's perspectives. At least I hope Definitely,
1: so. definitely, Ira. By the way, this is also one of the reasons why I don't give blanket statements of, uh, yeah, about the coping mechanisms, for example, you just mm. brought up. Because uh, there's, for example, we hear this a lot. Spend 15 minutes a day in nature, out in nature. Right. This will yeah. do you good. So if you, uh, yeah, you... It's better that you do this. Of course, it has definitely great benefits. But from which angle do you come to this conclusion? If you Mm. try to spend 15 minutes each day in nature, because you heard that from, uh, you read it in an article or whatever, that, oh yeah, I have to do this to be more productive. So Mm. I will do this to be more productive and I will uh, put uh, in place a morning routine to be productive, this and that to be productive. That is that is the wrong starting point. You shouldn't do these to be productive. You should do these to take care of yourself because mm-hmm. you're a worthy uh, human being, even when you're not uh, being productive or whatever. Yeah. So that the the the, um, the idea that is underlying whenever you do anything to take care of yourself, that is the important thing. If I tell you, okay, just uh, drink, I don't know, a cup of green tea every day and spend 15 minutes in nature and then uh, do 20 sit-ups and 10 Mm push-ups and then you will be super productive. That is, these things should come from the fact that, okay, like what does my body need? My body needs movement. My body needs more oxygen. That should be the motivation to do those things. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, these are just Band-Aid solutions. And what happens when you try to uh, cover a wound with Band-Aid? You just don't see it anymore, but it grows exactly. and grows underneath. And then it comes to a point where you have to go to the hospital or your, I don't know, the the limb needs to be amputated <laughs> or whatever. Of course, I'm, yeah. I'm being dramatic here, but
0: yeah.
1: that's, that's the point. So this is what I see a lot in the... "Quote unquote self help industry a lot, or or mm. any kind of okay ten quick tips and tricks and hacks to yeah. to p- boost your productivity or whatever. Well, yeah. that you have to go to the root of things. Right. Uh, that that is that's why I don't have a coping mechanism that I can suggest to anyone. Mm. What I suggest anyone is have the courage to go to the root cause of things and then trust that when you do that you will be in a better place anyway because having the courage to go there to look at that that what's going on that will inevitably help you
0: right yeah of course uh and also to to build on to that point i mean you said you know there's all these tips and tricks and hacks to increase our productivity but the whole point is not to just be more productive you're not trying to feel better so you can do more work because you're behind on your work you're you're Mm -hmm. trying to feel better because life is dark at the moment and so the productivity shouldn't be part of it i would like to share um one coping strategy that i discovered um Mm -hmm not that like I I think we should sort of like disagree on whether or not we should offer strategies, but this was, this was the big one for me. So I'm going to give like a cross podcast shout out to a podcast that has helped me a lot. Um, it's the Huberman lab podcast. So it's from this neuroscientist from Stanford named, uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman. Uh, and he started this podcast, I think a year ago, um, super brilliant guy, researches, um, like neuroplasticity and also Mm -hmm. like vision development. And so his Mm -hmm. podcast is all about understanding the nervous system and real time like tools you can do to help for everything from like learning to stress to memory Mm -hmm. to et cetera. And one of the first episodes I ever heard from him was talking about like circadian rhythms and and things like dopamine. And you hear it like, like I thought I knew what a circadian rhythm was and I guess I do, but something that really helped me was like, as is common for a lot of academics, like my sleep schedule has been awful for probably 15 years. Um, Mm -hmm. And so his, um, you know, one of the episodes discusses how to actually like, it's important to get blue light in the morning to help reset your circadian Mm -hmm. rhythm. And then, you know, actually make your sleep schedule regulate itself. And so Mm -hmm. I tried that and it was, it was a game changer because, you know, when you do get more sleep, obviously things work better, but it's hard to even, if you're working so hard, it's hard to actually get that longer term reset. You might get a day or two of good sleep, but it's not it's not consistent and then you know it's hard to build up that um, mm-hmm. that sort of good sleep pattern. And then the second element from that podcast was basically discussing how everyone says you know when you're when you're sleep deprived or you don't get enough sleep, like you're you're cranky and your emotions aren't good and that's like sort of obvious because when you're really tired, like you're just awful, right? But what, mm-hmm. I, what I found out from listening to one of these episodes was that when you're not getting enough REM sleep, that actually triggers, you know, patterns in your brain that recognize like the catastrophizing element mm-hmm. of reality. So mm-hmm. it's not so obvious that like I didn't get a lot of sleep last night, so I'm in a bad mood. But sometimes we don't notice that we're getting enough REM sleep specifically because REM sleep has a certain function for your body and brain and so does like the more shallow sleep. And so... Mm-hmm. I started tracking my sleep with like a, a sleep tracker. Like I have a Whoop band, but there is also Fitbits and whatever. And it made so much sense. And so when I started getting more REM sleep, I started noticing that I was like less emotional, if that makes sense. And Definitely. I think I think when you are in academia and you are and you are obviously overworked, it's like things are just worse when you are when you are more emotional to things, but it's not something that you can really recognize. Right. And so exactly it it was, it was a shocker to me to actually be like, Oh, I got a lot of REM sleep last night and I feel okay. Versus days where Mm -hmm. I know I didn't get a lot of REM and I'm like, why am I in such a bad, like not even a bad mood, just like, why does everything affect me so strongly today? So I would like highly recommend that podcast. It's the Huberman lab podcast. You can also watch on YouTube uh, Dr. Human, if you're listening, please come on the show. Um, <laughs> but it definitely like changed, it changed things because again, you would always hear like, get more sleep and you're like, okay, great. But you know, like this isn't, it didn't feel like it was really resonating. And then when I actually understood that if I got a specific type of sleep, I was less emotional, that helped me understand ways that I was having sort of these flare ups in,
1: in my mental health. Exactly exactly. And that, that's the thing you know when we when we try to do these things out of the, this motivation to, to become more productive, the, the intuitive thing that many people do is cut back on sleep, And work more, for instance, or do, or cut back on sleep and exercise because exercise makes you more productive, but you just tire out your body and you exhaust your body. You need sleep. That's why I say also, just, just like you said, sleep is something that uh, that you cannot run from. Mm-hmm. You can try to limit it, but at some point your your body will say no and it will shut down some things because yep. you are sleep deprived or, or it will just make you go to sleep and not wake up for a long time and you will be like, oh, why am I sleeping 15 hours out of a sudden? Yeah, I
0: so, think... I th- Oh, here we go. Here we go again. Please, <laughs> please continue. I'm so sorry. No, no.
1: Go, go ahead. Because after that, I want to talk about the circadian uh, something so you, related to the circadian sure, rhythm. But sure. if you want to say something more about the speech, yes, go ahead.
0: super quick. I think it comes back to, and I, I should have led with this earlier, but I think it comes back to like boundaries. Like one thing I did not have in my academic career and I still struggle with is... Is boundaries, and I think oh, yes. definitely sleep is one of those those fuzzy boundaries that most of us are like, oh, "I'll just sleep a little later," I'll, or yeah. you are like, "I'll go exercise," but you are exercising in the evening and then you can't sleep. And it's, it's like, yes. and if I had, it wasn't until honestly my my best friend who is still in research, he's a postdoc, but we were in the lab together, and it wasn't until like my last year in the lab where he was like you know what i'm just gonna leave at this time and we we're all like what there was very much the culture of like you can't leave before everyone else does kind of thing and he was like no this is stupid you know like i'm getting my work done i have a long commute i'm, I'm leaving and it mm-hmm. wasn't until like people sort of show you that it's okay to have boundaries and like put yourself first that sometimes you mm-hmm. understand it's possible to take for yourself
1: mm-hmm. so please continue Definitely. Yeah, uh, boundaries is a very important topic. I think I, I have some things to say about that too. But coming back to the, the biological side of things, also, you talked about the circadian rhythm and uh, sleep cycle. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to uh, complement that with the, the biological and neurological differences uh, and hormonal differences between men and women too. Mm. Because uh, many, many women in academia, they also talk about this, like they, they say this system is so patriarchal, the patriarchy is so dominant in this because the, the whole society, of course, the way it is organized, it's expecting everyone to function as males, huh? yes. but, but women function actually differently. Mm -hmm. So for you, uh, let's say it could be more about the circadian rhythm and all, but for for women, it is one step further than that. You have the daily rhythm, the circadian rhythm, plus you have the monthly thing going on too, Mm -hmm. this, this menstrual cycle. And that also affects your concentration, your productivity, your sleep, your mood, everything. So uh, especially the the women who are listening to this podcast, I would also urge them to to look into that side too because uh, regulating your um, sleep and eating times and everything may not be enough. You also need Mm -hmm. to be more mindful and more self-compassionate about the the whole cycle that you go through as a human being. Mm -hmm. Uh, So having said that about boundaries, you are so right. But one thing I would like to confess on this podcast is that boundaries was only a word for me. And I didn't understand what it was. Everybody Mm -hmm. was talking about boundaries um, around me. And until a year ago, I had no idea what they meant because, Mm -hmm. yeah, what is is a boundary? People would tell me, yeah, but you should set boundaries. What do I set? Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to set here. Mm This is, you know, for for some people like me <laughs> in, in the past, that they, they have no idea what a boundary is. And mm-hmm. before you uh, can reinforce a boundary, first you have to set it. Before you set one, you have to recognize what you need, what is a negotiable thing for you, what is a yes. non-negotiable thing yes. for you and all of that. And some yes. of us... In academia and also outside of academia, but many of us in academia, we are so programmed to be to to function at hundred and fifty percent all the time that if we if we need to take a, like a ten minutes break, even that becomes a big thing. Like, oh no, but I can't, I can't. Well, who says you can't? Mm-hmm. You're a human mm-hmm. being. Mm-hmm. So, and and uh, once if you are at that stage, of course, it is unthinkable for the, someone like that who to think, okay, at five, it's five o'clock and I'm going to leave. Like it's, it's not even a mm-hmm. thing. Can mm-hmm. I, I explain that? So the boundaries is really a very deep issue that I'm also exploring further and further for myself and with my clients because it, it goes so deep.
0: De- definitely. Uh, yeah. I, I have the exact same, Struggle, and I, I think this is like a, a larger narrative in my life. Is that I, I don't know. I, I guess I never. I don't want to say I didn't have boundaries, but it goes deeper than that. I think I, I still struggle with sort of like that domestic sphere of my life, and uh, I think because you know when I was an undergrad, I, I you know worked hard. I was a student. I had fun, whatever. But it's it's hard work, and you're still sort of like learning how to develop you know, live by yourself and those sort of like mm-hmm. routines and functions that keep you going and, you know, make sure you have a roof over your head, et cetera. And then I met like immediately after I, like a week after my last exam in undergrad, I, I ended up working in this lab that became my master's lab. And I think ultimately, like I never actually developed, this is like so embarrassing to tell people, but and people don't actually understand what, I'm, what I mean sometimes. But like, I, I don't think I developed a lot of these like domestic Boundaries are these domestic habits. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, I, I never really cooked. I didn't have a lot of groceries. I ate out all the time. Mm-hmm. Like when I was in grad school, I definitely remember there were times when I ate one meal a day because I was just so busy. And it was always that like, I'm hungry and I'm tired, but it's going to be more work if I take an hour for lunch. So I'll just go eat, you know, in two hours when all of these, you know, water baths or whatever are done running. And mm-hmm. it's insane. And so, But I think I look at other people that, you know, I think I feel like are more adjusted and it's like, Oh, okay. Because they, they been eating dinner at the same time their entire life and they go grocery shopping on a certain day. And for me in my grad school experience, and I guess what I still work on is like, I never established those. And so it was hard for me to have boundaries around them around them because it was also sort of nebulous. It was like, mm-hmm. I don't eat dinner at the same time. Every day dinner is like, Eat when you can, kind of thing. And so, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, i'm thirty six years for old.
1: leaves yeah, right? exactly. it, yeah it's
0: like it's like i'm I'm thirty six years old, and I'm like, I still am like, why do I have no food in my house, right? So I think <laughs> I think especially for younger people in in academia, it's like you're, you're you're absolutely right. It's like you're encouraged to just make work the focal point, and everything else gets pushed to the periphery. And if you're not yeah, exactly. really, adamant about like no I actually need to sleep seven hours a day I need to eat dinner at this time and to do that I need to you know all these little domestic things it's really easy to just like get to the point like I was so many times where you're like okay I'm going to eat one meal a day for the next three days because I have no groceries I have no time to go shopping and when I get home it's 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 a lot more than like okay I'm just going to like sleep in tomorrow and feel better or take a day off like you're so deep in this, in this pit <laughs> that Like everything is just, you're just sort of hanging by a thread. So I totally agree. Boundaries are a concept, but I think you have to develop over time the self-knowledge of like, what do you need? Like, what do you really need to function sleep wise, Mm -hmm. social wise, family wise, hobby wise, and really like safeguard those and start from there and then understand how to fit your work around it because you're always going to be convinced and pushed to work harder. So it's like, Mm -hmm. in the end, you're the only one that's going to lose. Um, Yeah. Great, great point. I'm so glad you brought that up. So glad. Awesome. Okay. So this has been a super awesome conversation and I, I don't want to have it go on too, too long because this is par for the course for the episode so far and my editor is going to kill me. Um, So let's touch on just some closing remarks. Where can people find you and get in touch with you if they'd like to reach out and, and um, get some help?
1: Uh, Sure. Well, uh, I am now sharing my experiences and my learnings from my burnout time Mm -hmm. with uh, academics. Uh, But beyond that, I am also talking about mental health in academia a lot. And I have a podcast too. Yes. and It's called Mind Your Own Revisions. That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Well, I looked really hard for that name, actually. Well, anyway, and my website is called uh, www.mindyourownrevisions.com
0: okay. as
1: well. And uh, I actually, cl- as a closing remark and also related to boundaries, I also want to say this. Uh, last week, I made an like a unofficial survey with some academics and mm-hmm. uh, about their burnout experiences. And some people brought up this, this issue that was bothering them during the pandemic, especially uh, related to boundaries and this family issue mm-hmm. and all of that, the family life. They said, as a single person with no kids, the society expects me to, to go by the, the needs of people with families and uh, and with kids mm-hmm. and everything, and mm-hmm. I am supposed to like accommodate my colleagues with, um, yeah, with children to look after and all of that. Right. So that is also an issue for for many people. So I'm very happy that you brought it up. And uh, we, I think, we weren't able to talk really too deep about mental health as a as in terms of mental illness and all of that, although we started the conversation with anxiety and depression and all of that. But what we talked about today uh, is really, really important. It was mostly about self-care and the uh, building blocks of self-care that leads to how you feel and function uh, mentally as well. Mm -hmm. But one closing remark I would like to make uh, about mental illness and about people who who were diagnosed with such things as, as depression, anxiety, or something, something else. Personally, I would like to tell all of these people that this doesn't define you. Mm. And secondly, I want to say acceptance of your condition will really take a huge load off of your soul shoulders. Mm -hmm. What do I mean by that? Uh, uh, Most of the time of my life when I was depressed, my focal point was to get rid of it, get rid of depression. Why am I depressed? I should find a way to get out of it, to finish it. Mm -hmm. But now I changed my focus to this depression. I have it. I will probably have it until the end of my life. Mm -hmm. This is my personal challenge in this world. Everybody has one and this is mine. What I am going to focus on from now on is to manage it, how to manage it. And that really changed my whole outlook. And because of this acceptance and the change of the focal point, I was able to be more compassionate with myself mm. because I wasn't beating myself anymore be- because I had depression, right? It was just, right. it was a fact that had to be dealt with. So that is also a small message I would like to give before uh, we close this episode. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thank you. That, that's very, very important to hear is that it, it's not about piling on the shame for yourself. It's just about understanding yeah. I, this is a thing I have. Like I am five foot seven, five foot seven and a half exactly. on a good day. That's exactly. just how I am. I'm going to have to accommodate myself if I'm playing basketball kind of thing. Like yes. you need to, you need to just, just deal with it. So thank you so much. And again, uh, we didn't get into some of the deeper topics, but you're welcome to come back anytime because this is an thank ongoing I thing. I would love
1: that. So,
0: yeah. uh, yeah. And hopefully I cut you off zero times. Um, uh,
1: it's, it's a goal <laughs> it's okay. I can aim for. A pleasure. Uh, so
0: thank you so much. Ruzgun, good and have a great rest of the weekend. And I will definitely keep you posted on, um, just, you know, when the episode's all finished and, uh, get it cleaned up and it's been awesome. So thank you so much for taking thank the time. You. I really appreciate it. And thank you so you much, soon. Ira.
1: I'm very happy that you invited me and, uh, that we had this opportunity to speak about such important things. Thank you.
0: Too. All right. Take care. Luzgan. And that is a wrap for episode three of the Splitting podcast. This was my conversation with Uzgun Unver about mental health struggles in academia. A really, really important conversation. Obviously, we couldn't get to everything in one episode. So hopefully, Uzgun can come back and we can chat more about this and touch on some more topics. If you'd like to get in touch with Uzgun and check out her fantastic work, I highly recommend it. You could find her at Mind Your Own Revisions. That's both the name of her website and her amazing podcast, which I would recommend checking out. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at the Biosplaining Podcast, you can email us biosplainingpodcast at gmail.com. Similarly, you can find me and reach out on LinkedIn and Twitter. LinkedIn's probably your best bet. My first name is Ira, I-R-A. My last name is a little weird spelling, S-H-E-R-R. So you can find me, Ira Share, on LinkedIn or under Coach Bio, which is also what I write under. Twitter, you can find me at Ira Share. Any feedback you have on the podcast would be great. If there's any topics you want us to explore, please reach out. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you want to hear. The podcast ecosystem is more and more and more saturated and more competitive every single day. So I really appreciate you taking the time to listen and have this amazing feedback from the community. Music, sound design, and editing of today's episode is by the mighty Fred Brenton. Gio Petrucci designed the Biosplitting logo and visual identity. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll catch you next time.